Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jeffrey Wu with the Health Via Modern Nutrition HVMN podcast. And I'm excited to welcome back my friend Simland back on the program. How are you doing? I'm doing really good and uh, glad to be back. Yeah, we had a good conversation, what, maybe a year, a year and a half ago. And I know we just recently taped the conversation on your program over on uh, YouTube as well. So good to share the communities and share the knowledge here. So for folks who might not have tuned in or aren't following on social, you're a prolific personal experimenter, biohacker, author. What's the best way to describe yourself as you're tinkering through human performance, metabolism, all of that good stuff? Yeah, I think uh, I would uh, consider myself like a, an, an author, first and foremost, and doing like just uh, experiments with myself and uh, sharing uh, my uh, you know uh, information with others as well. Yeah, 100%. So maybe just on top of mind, since I know that you've been looking a lot at resilience, immune function, and obviously top of mind is COVID-19, anything particularly special that you've been implementing personally? I know that different geographies, different countries have very different strategies in terms of how they manage a population. I know that the United Kingdom just went back into lockdown. America is kind of on track to reopening. Obviously, Sweden never locked down. How are you doing? I know you're you're in <laughs> Scandinavia, so like, kind of curious to hear your thoughts, your opinions on the geographical front as well as a personal front. Yeah, well, uh, in here in Estonia, everything is uh, pretty normal. Like uh, we did lockdown during the first uh, wave, but uh, during the summer we kind of reopened and. Uh, it's it, you know there are some you know some small rising cases, but most people are still pretty uh, normal, and uh, yeah, don't, we don't have like a huge amount of restrictions, <laughs> so you can still uh, go anywhere you want, and uh, not necessarily there's like no uh, mask mandates uh, either, and I think like people are just you know they may take themselves more cautiously or they may be more careful when they go uh, into public spaces, but uh, yeah, nothing uh, really serious. Personally, I haven't been a pretty I haven't been affected almost at all. Like I still live in the countryside and I don't have like a different people uh, around me uh, all the time. So yeah, I'm pretty fortunate in that sense. And I wasn't never, uh, you know, uh, kind of limited by the lockdowns aside from maybe like having to cancel some uh, uh, conferences or something like that. But uh, on that, it's been a pretty, uh, pretty normal and actually quite, uh, quite productive. Yeah, nice. I mean, that's that's very fortunate, very lucky. So curious, and just to get to better understand Estonian policy. So there is no mask mandate. You can go, are bars open, restaurants open? Is this, and, and, and the follow-up question is that, is this common within the kind of the Eastern European, kind of Northern Europe region? Is that just kind of what it looks like around that region of, uh, of, our, of our planet right now? Currently the bars uh, and, you know, big uh, kind of uh, malls are open uh, you can't really have like mass uh, conferences or mass gatherings, uh, but uh, like other other like uh, public spaces are pretty open. Uh, gyms are open as well. Uh, like in Estonia, like a lot of people, like we, we, like we have, we, we were like ex-Soviet Union country, and a lot of people are still alive who were in the Soviet Union, and uh, I think that they have this uh, preconceived notion about uh, being uh, not really uh, trustworthy of politicians and uh, not really tr not trusting uh, like the government and that, that sort of thing. So I think uh, that's why we, uh, like the average person may might, might have uh, kept a cool head or trying to be very skeptical about uh, this entire thing. And uh, they certainly like value their freedoms as well. They don't uh, necessarily react very positively to uh, people trying to restrict their freedoms. And uh, yeah, they're yeah. very, very kind of uh, skeptical. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I don't even think it's limited to post-Soviet <laughs> bloc countries. I mean, even in America, right? Like I would say there's, I mean, the freedom of our country is that there's a lot of expression and for sure there's a lot of folks who don't trust government in America as well. So, I mean, I think it's like, I mean, for better or for worse, I think that the public will in America to do a mass shutdown has, has gone past. I think it's hard to get that enough of a social commitment, a social contract to recommit to that at this point. We might have been able to like shut down right in the beginning when there's a lot of positive will, a lot of trust, a lot of like community goodwill together. But now I think that just sailed. And I don't know if that's good or yeah. bad. I think it's just like looking at it factually, pragmatically talking to people from all different political spectrums. I think it's just hard to ask the population, uh, the, the people to say, hey, we've been in this pseudo weird lockdown for going onwards of nine months, going into a full year. People have livelihoods that they need to worry about. And I think there's a good discussion. Maybe it's we're lulled into complacency where the death rates are lower, right? But the case rates are higher, at least in America. I'm not sure what's going mm -hmm. on in Estonia. Yeah, um, yeah, I think I agree. And like, you, we can't, like, literally, we can't like hold the lockdowns any longer. And uh, like, even the WHO said that you shouldn't do the lockdowns because, like, it's going to lead to uh, a lot of, uh, you know, poverty and uh, food scarcity in the third world and uh, you know other poorer countries. So yeah, it's a, it's a very like we, we shouldn't uh, try to use it as a first uh, line of defense. Uh, like uh, we, we kind of that train has already passed, and we have to kind of focus on, on other means of management, uh, the spread of the virus and. Yeah, making sure that we, you know, take into account also the other things that you know help to uh, deal with the virus on a personal level as well by just in increasing our own uh, resilience and uh, strengthening our immune systems and yeah, uh, making sure that we we as individuals are, are like uh, healthy and on point. Yeah, let's 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 dive into that topic. I mean, let's talk about the individual. Let's talk about the individual resiliency. So, if we have to assume that public policy has kind of gone, you know, past its limits in terms of enforcing one or another direction. I think, again, I don't want to be overly pessimistic, but I think pragmatically, it's going to be a lot of the, the intervention, the defense is going to be bottoms up individual. So I know this is something that you, you focus a lot on. What has been things that have generally something that you focus on in terms of resilience and what are things that you've really doubled down on in terms of really ramping up immune function, all of that good stuff. One of the biggest things that I've noticed uh, that is very important for uh, immune system and uh, just general uh, physical health is uh, your vitamin D status. We all know vitamin D is important as a hormone, uh, but it's also quite essential for uh, the immune system, just regulates the immune cell functioning as well as uh, increases like the cytotoxicity of your, your immune cells as well. So, um, you know, you definitely, and you know, there are studies showing that the lower your vitamin D status is, the worse outcomes you get from COVID-19 and uh, vitamin D deficiency is also linked with other uh, immunodeficiencies like autoimmune diseases and uh, increased infection to influenza and other other similar cases. So uh, just uh, as, a, as a person uh, during the summer, I was just make sure that I got plenty of sunlight and uh, go out, went outside uh, whenever I could. And uh, even even now when it's, you know, uh, getting darker, I still try to get uh, as much uh, vitamin D uh, as I can during daytime from the sun because like, it, that's the most bioavailable form of getting it and uh, also the safest. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, I do take like a vitamin D supplement as well 
because I'm like, you know, th- there's not a lot of sunlight in Estonia uh, yeah. for this time of the year. But uh, yeah, generally just uh, try, I try to get as much sunlight as I could during the, uh, you know, summer. Yeah, that's something that I've been hammering home through our community, our conversations on my podcast and channel. But I think especially in wintertime, especially now when you already have typical yeah shrinking of daylight seasonal disorders in terms of mood and because it's going to get cold in parts of america parts of the world people are going to you know go out even less so i think that's extra important to think about if you can get sunlight i 100% agree with you try to get as much natural sunlight as possible but if it's just not possible look at supplementation look at diet how do you get vitamin d into your system that seems very 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 sensible and first like you should also get it uh, tested so to see what your vitamin d levels are actually because there are like like tiers of deficiency so like some studies they find that if your uh, vitamin D is below 30 nanograms, uh, then uh, you, you're at a very severe risk of uh, severe outcomes versus if you're between 30 to 50, then you're still like in a very harsh uh, outcome, but it's not like as severe as uh, the se- severe deficiency. And the, like, the optimal range tends to be around 60 to 70 nanograms per, per milliliter. So yep. that's what you would try to aim towards. If you're low, then you you probably would need to like supplement it. But if you're already within that range, then you don't necessarily need to take like a massive uh, megadose. Yeah, I think it's worth caveating that this is associational. This is retrospective data. So this wasn't a randomized control trial moving For sure, forward yeah. prospectively. And I know there's like a lot of discussion in in in, in the in the in the social media discussion sphere around epidemiology and like, when is it legit? When is it not legit? I think in terms of just the vitamin D associational data, it's so robust and it's so cheap and free intervention. <laughs> yeah. And there's like no downside really For sure. that it's like, yeah. cool. Like that seems like a very reasonable plan of action, given that like yeah. literally getting sunlight is free. Vitamin yeah. D is very cheap. Like, you know, it's a pretty no brainer. If you ask me yeah. in terms of potential even, benefit even- and potential risk. Yeah, even if it doesn't, you know, help your uh, ri- infection risk, it's, it's still important for all the other things that vitamin D does, like your hormones and uh, just the general immune system functioning as well. So yeah, I w- yeah, like just getting something that simple is uh, very easy to do. Yeah. So vitamin D, hundred percent agreement with what 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 else we got? That's that you're thinking about, that you're recommending, that you're doubling down on. And yeah, I also during this time I've been uh, taking sauna on a very regular basis, and the sauna is like very known to have like cardiovascular health benefits, but it also has slight uh, these immuno strengthening benefits by increasing like white white blood cell count. Um, and uh, increasing nitric oxide that has like antiviral effects. And, you know, some some of the high heat, like what I think can be do is to inhibit uh, some viral replication as well. Some uh, like the through heat shock proteins. So heat shock proteins are these uh, stress molecules that gets re- get released uh, during uh, heat stress. And uh, they haven't shown to kind of inhibit in uh, some other like animal models to inhibit the replication of influenza virus. Even like uh, in if you like pre pre at, pre-treat uh, mice with heat before like infecting them with influenza, then they have a much uh, lower death rate. Uh, so it, it's another very simple uh, way of uh, you know boosting your immune system functioning and just increasing overall like resilience. Like the heat resilience is you know good for your immune system, but it's also uh, again like beneficial for the, all the other things as well, like cardiovascular fitness and uh, reduced cardiovascular disease risk. And yeah, it's uh, another simple thing to implement. Yeah, that's if 
that's the only thing I miss. I think I, I'm very fortunate. I feel like I'm very productive and can kind of do my thing, but I don't have an access to a personal sauna. I wish I did. And you know, the, the gym that I, 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 that has a sauna has that section shut down. So that is definitely one thing that I would be doing if I had access to a sauna. Mm. So what does your routine protocol look like? I know that it's something that's pretty common. I see you talk about sauna a lot. So are you doing, you know, what is the exact protocol you're following? What degrees, how long, multiple times are you doing hot and cold mixing that and, and alternating? What is your sauna protocol? Yeah, well, uh, I'm quite fortunate again that I have uh, the traditional sauna as well as the infrared sauna. So uh, I try to do it almost like maybe five to six times a week. Uh, so I kind of alternate between the traditional sauna and the infrared sauna. So on one day, I'll have the traditional sauna for maybe 20 to 30 minutes. And the temperature is approximately on the traditional sauna, it goes quite high. It's like maybe 200 to 220 Fahrenheit, something like wow. that. Yeah, that's it's very, like... very high. I mean, it's boiling. <laughs> I mean, I've... I've had some friends who do like post water boiling, but they're a hardcore mega athlete, super <laughs> soldier type people, man. So you're, you're, you're doing 200 to 220 for 30 minutes. Something like that. Like I may do like, a, I may do uh, two sessions of 15 minutes or something as well, where I'll have like a, a cold plunge in between the sessions. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, I might do it both ways. And generally, it's like uh, once you get kind of uh, used to it, then it doesn't feel like uh, that's super hot. Like your skin isn't going to uh, burn and it's not going to cause any like uh, damage to it. Most of the response is associated with just the uh, heat shock or the heat response that uh, generally elicits this uh, higher heat shock protein response as well from the traditional sauna. Whereas with the infrared sauna, you don't necessarily have to uh, reach that high temperatures because the uh, infrared wavelengths have like this uh, additional unique benefit that you don't get from the traditional sauna. And uh, with the infrared, you can stay between like maybe 150 or uh, 160 even to get the same benefits uh, or like some 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 uh, health health benefits from that. Yeah, I'd love to actually tease into this a little bit more. I've been skeptical on the infrared sauna. It, the, the data is less robust to me, but I may just be less familiar with the with the corpus of data there. I think again, just from like having an ancillary interest in sauna and heat shock proteins, it makes a lot of sense why just like the classic dry sauna makes sense. There's obviously resilience needed to withstand high amounts of heat, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts in terms of one, the broader literature for infrared sauna, right? So infrared wavelength light, and then two, obviously, you know, it's something that you're adapting, you know, do you see a subjective difference? How do you couch the level of evidence between kind of real heat dry sauna versus infrared sauna in terms of the literature and then subjective feel like what is your kind of intuition in terms of the pros and cons of each yeah well uh, like mechanistically the uh, infrared sauna is going to uh, you know penetrate deeper into the tissue and uh, stimulate collagen synthesis as well as uh, create this small amount of uh, reactive oxygen species and uh, like that the body then uh, responds to by increasing its own antioxidant uh, defense systems and there are some like studies show that the infrared sauna increases endothelial or improves endothelial functioning, uh, which you know the tradi traditional sauna does as well. But the infrared sauna specifically increases like endothelial uh, nitric oxide. And, you know, that can be beneficial for cardiovascular function as well and uh, antiviral effects. Is that done in humans? Is it, and is it controlled against the normal dry sauna? I don't think, I don't think they have controlled that uh, specifically. So I haven't uh, seen a lot of, uh, yeah, I agree. Like I haven't seen like, 
very clear uh, or definitive results or conclusions about which one is better or which one has uh, like a higher effect uh, on that because I think that those studies haven't just been uh, done yet, which uh, yeah would fascinated to see in the future for sure. Uh, but yeah. I personally think that both are very beneficial and both have health benefits. With the like the traditional sauna, you may get like this higher heat track protein response because of the higher heat, and potentially you may start to sweat more as well as a result of that. Uh, whereas with the infrared sauna, you get like maybe a better skin health uh, benefit with the collagen and uh, with the penetrating deeper into the joints and uh, tendons and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I mean, I think where I net out is that I like the data behind hot sauna, the dry sauna. I, I I think it's also, I think the anecdotal evidence and stories from like, like I know elite performers who I trust and I, 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 that like are seeing real recovery benefits from hot sauna. So in conjunction with the literature, as well as like speaking towards very credible athletes, top performers that are really smart and like really fit. It's like that kind of passes the evidence bar for my personal test. I'm just not necessarily convinced on infrared just yet, but I think you're absolutely right. Like it's not to say that I'm dismissive of it. I would love to see the data, especially looking at non-superiority. Is it equivalent? Is it the same? Is it, you know, maybe there's a potential like a, a superior in, in terms of collagen, potentially less benefit for heat shock protein. Those seem to be open yeah. questions. Yeah, yeah. I think like uh, more heat uh, definitely will increase like more of the heat shock proteins and also it releases more growth hormone and also get your heart racing more. So it does mimic maybe like some aspects of exercise, but necessarily like maybe like more heat isn't always better. So you may, may vary between people as well. So if uh, you're not used to like uh, that high amounts of heat, then maybe the infrared sauna can be good enough for you initially and as you get increase your heat tolerance uh, then you may benefit more from the uh, traditional sauna because you kind of uh, gotten used to some of the heat that you would get from the uh, infrared sauna yeah let's nerd out a little bit more on sauna protocols and i think that might not be a better person to like share some thoughts and tips with than than with you here so when i had access to sauna and had like my full gym routine down i would always look to to end a heavy, heavy lifting workout in the hot sauna. And the theory and mechanism there is to further increase exercise adaptation, further cause, cause stress. And then as you have both the exercise adaptation and stress double down with heat that causes more recovery, more repair processes. And then obviously if the growth hormone testosterone increases from the hot sauna compounds with recovery after that heavy workout, that seemed to be subjectively beneficial for myself, as well as that's a typical protocol that I've heard from elite, elite performers in terms of how they were maintaining really, really strong body composition. So Curious to hear if that's similar to how you think about implementing sauna into a day, right? Like you could do it like by itself. You could do it after a workout. You could, I don't know if people do it before a workout. I don't see why you would do it before a workout. Curious how you think about staging this. Do you think about staging it fasted, unfasted? I think the fasted is probably pretty marginal. Like, but I think it wouldn't hurt to do a fasted heavy workout, then end with a hot sauna and then eat a lot of food. That might be like <laughs> the most precise, optimal approach, right? You get yeah. all the compounding stacking of interventions here. Love yeah, to I hear think... your thoughts there. And then yeah. let's talk about cold right after. But before we right. get too, too broad here, let's talk about kind of stacking and protocols and ordering and kind of the 
technical uh, fine tuning, the the super micro optimizations. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I can learn out, and that's like uh, I think maybe the best time to take the sauna would be. Uh, like after a workout to, yeah, like, like you said, to promote the recovery and the heat, the heat shock proteins will uh, like slow down or decrease the protein degradation. So you will be less catabolic uh, when you are in the sauna. The body releases growth hormone to facilitate that. It also increases autophagy, which will, uh, which will try to, with the, with the heat shock proteins, repair those misfolded proteins and uh, repair the damage. And there are like some uh, rat studies where uh, they basically, you know, crippled some uh, rats in the study. And uh, those rats that were treated with the heat shock uh, recovered faster and they regrow their muscles faster as a result of that as well. So that's like, you know, some rat studies. But uh, I do think that, uh, you know, like you said, the athletes also report that they recover faster from the uh, exercise. The heat that you add, let's say on top of after a resistance exercise, Exercise would help with like muscle growth as well because of the growth hormone and the reduced catabolism. So it's not the same as you would with the cold. Like if you if you take the cold, uh, you take a cold bath or something like cryo immediately after hitting the weights. Then you some research shows that it uh, inhibits the muscle growth signal and uh, the adaptation, the anabolic signal because of shutting down inflammation and shutting down the anabolism. Whereas that doesn't happen with the heat. Uh, so the heat is kind of uh, again like a small stressor. It mimics the aspects of exercise and uh, increases some of the growth hormone. So yeah, I think the if you really want to recover faster from exercise than uh, taking the sauna for maybe again like 20, uh, 20 minutes uh, uh, would be good because although it uh, may not inhibit the uh, muscle adaptation, like overdoing it is still probably not a good idea. So you just want to get like a modest uh, dose of the heat uh, immediately after exercise. And that may be like a 20 minute uh, session. In terms of like fasting and that sort of thing, uh, I would uh, still, like on some days, if I'm not working out on rest days, then I would take the sauna in a fast state uh, because of like, again, the, it's, it's going to reduce the potential muscle catabolism that you get from fasting uh, by increasing the growth hormone and uh, decreasing protein degradation. Uh, so that would be good, especially if we're doing like longer extended fasts. That would be like a perfect uh, recipe for uh, preventing muscle loss on a long fast. Uh, but And on top of that, like the heat, al although the heat, you know, has all these benefits, uh, the heat also releases certain like stress granules and other, you know, inflammatory molecules to a certain extent that if they stick around for too long, then... Um, it's not going to be good uh, in general. So you would want to get like the stress response from the heat as well as other stressors like the colds and exercise, but you want to kind of clear out those stress molecules uh, and stress granules as well quite rapidly so that they wouldn't stick around. And for that, they have been shown like um, the process of autophagy kind of uh, deals with that, uh, like eliminates these stress, stress granules. So uh, if you take the sauna in a faster state, then you kind of get you kind of uh, hit two birds with one stone, you get the benefits of the sauna. And at the same time, because you're in a higher state of like autophagy, then it also means that you eliminate those inflammatory uh, stress granules as well huh. from the fasting. So like, it doesn't mean that you have to take the sauna fasted. It probably means that you don't want to go into the sauna with uh, like a full stomach and uh, immediately after eating something uh, massive, because uh, then you go into the sauna with less, uh, less autophagy and uh, you're kind of resilience against the heat uh, would be somewhat uh, lower as well. Yeah. I mean, I think like from a metabolic perspective that, you know, 
sounds like it makes sense, but even just from a comfort level, right? Like if you have a heavy yeah. meal, you go into a hot sauna, it's not very comfortable just from a <laughs> subjective, like, Hey, is this like a, like a reasonable human feelings and emotion perspective? For sure. You mentioned stress granules and I've never heard of that concept before. What is that exactly? Is, is that like, I mean, there's stress hormones, cortisol, like what is, what is the definition of stress granules and, and what does that mean from a physiology perspective? Yeah, it's like hard to, you know, define those. Uh, there's a specific like a protein complexes and uh, I can give you like a few examples that they're quite complex uh, names like YB1, like Y-box protein one <laughs> is an example of that and LIN28 and so these very uh, complex names, but essentially stress granules uh, they appear in response to any kind of physiological stress to a certain extent, uh, whether that be the colds or the heat. And uh, they do... Uh, they Are these proteins? Help. Are these proteins? They're, they're basically like complexes and uh, okay. yeah, pro protein complexes. And uh, they have been like implicated in some uh, you know, diseases if they're like in excess or if they stay around for too long. So it's a normal physiological response. Uh, problem is that if you're like maybe in a disease state uh, where your body isn't capable of dealing with them or eliminating them uh, proactively, uh, then uh, you know things things that may uh, go uh, wrong. Yeah, cool. That's that's helpful. I I'm learning a new concept there. So one thing I think you said, and I want to explore this more, is this use of hot and cold, heat and cold, and. And I think one of the things that you hit on top of was that when you do cold, you actually halt a lot of the anabolic processes. So, and, and I think when people look at LeBron James doing like the cryo chamber and all these like elite athletes doing the cryo chamber, I see a lot of wannabe athletes and a <laughs> lot of gym enthusiasts just like want to do the cryo chamber. But exactly to your point, there's actually been a randomized controlled trial that if you constantly go cold after a heavy workout, you actually decrease the anabolic processes and you actually don't get the benefits of your exercise. And I think that's not well understood enough because people are just like, oh, I want to kind of be my hero, like LeBron James. <laughs> so I'm going to just like go to the, the crowd chamber every single day. And you're actually just like detracting from the benefit of exercise. However, I think LeBron James is not stupid. I think what he precisely is doing is that for certain scenarios, when you're not looking for adaptation, where you're just trying to get recovery to perform the next day because you're in a playoff series, you just want to be as fresh yeah. as possible, then it might make sense to go cryo, go cold, reduce your inflammation so you're fresh the next day. But don't do that for your training, right? Because you yeah. want adaptation. You want more stress. You want to get that damage. Your body can actually repair that damage and get stronger. So I think yeah. that's like the fine-tuned nuance in terms of cold. Don't use cold all the time after a workout only use cold. If you are like having like a, a, a series of competitions, series of things where you need to perform and like for the next day, it's like the playoff game or something important, then maybe use the cold. And I think conversely, the same thing applies for heat, like heat, as you're, as you're mentioning is an, another hormetic stress. So you're causing more damage more stress as you, and then as the body recovers that you get more adaptation, you compound the benefits of exercise. But I would then conversely also be careful of using too much heat right before a playoff game. Cause mm -hmm. like, so I think that's like kind of the way I would recommend and talk about in terms of using heat and cold, right? Like don't yeah. necessarily sauna right before the match tomorrow, right? Cause that's like an extra workout essentially before like the, like the, like the, like the, like the, like the, like the actual match that counts, but definitely use the sauna 
during the workout training routine up till the competition and then like basically try to peak, right? Like do everything easy, yeah. do everything light, don't necessarily do a sauna anymore. And then conversely, the cold should be not be used in training, but then used during, you know, battlefield or used during a competition time. Yeah, Any thoughts yeah. there? Any clarifications there? Disagree? Agree? Yeah, I agree. And uh, let's, it depends on the goals of the person and uh, what are they training for. So yeah, like LeBron James doesn't want to be uh, Ronnie Coleman or he doesn't want to be as uh, you know big and uh, muscular as him. So uh, for him, uh, it makes sense to take like a cryo after like a training session or something uh, or in between games because he needs to get like recovered quickly in order to be prepared for the next game. Uh, and he doesn't care about, you know, muscle growth at that point uh, or, you know, these adaptations that uh, he may be pursuing. Whereas if you are like on a, you're going to the gym on a regular basis, then you need to have like this small amount of inflammation and stress uh, in order to sit signal the body to adapt and grow. So, uh, you know, the small amount of uh, stress or the adaptations you get from the exercise are one of the kind of key uh, signaling factors to the adaptations that you get in terms of like strength increase, uh, power and uh, muscle growth. The, the kind of the literature doesn't really show that the cold inhibits like cardiovascular adaptations so you may you may still take like a colder soak um, after cardio or something or like endurance type of exercise but it does definitely uh, shut down like the anabolism from uh, like resistance training and weights especially so i would i would i would you know if i were to take the colds then uh, i would take it only on like rest days uh, when i'm trying to get recovery and i, I wouldn't take it on the days uh, where i'm doing uh, weights and uh, muscle muscle growth yeah i agree in in terms of overdoing it i haven't maybe i just haven't like sit in the sauna for five hours obviously there's <laughs> some limit where like you just start cooking yourself right do you have some subjective sense where you push it too far i mean <laughs> like i've definitely heard heard of again friends who sat in 212 degree fahrenheit which is boiling for like hours and like kind of do it as like one of a, a <laughs> like a, a feat of strength type of a competition. Right. Is there a range that's actually dangerous? I don't think this, again, this is like not studied in RCTs or clinic like research. Right. This is just like top performers, elite performers, biohackers, just like pushing the limits of what's known. I'm curious, sure. do you have anecdotes, thoughts in terms of when people go take it too far? Or, or have, have <laughs> yeah. you seen that limit where it feels like people have like, like, basically past the Yerkes-Dodson curve of actually being beneficial. Yeah, for sure. Like, uh, you know, maybe it was, I think, uh, 2012 or is maybe like 2008, something some like a decade ago, uh, there was like the sauna sauna championships uh, in Finland. And, and people uh, compete for how long they can stay in the sauna. That's a thing. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and uh, that they, they had been doing it quite for a while. Uh, but in, uh, yeah, like the their finalists, one was a Finnish guy, another was Russian. And they hit maybe like was like 240 Fahrenheit, something like that. And uh, after like a, maybe 10 minutes or so, they uh, both like started to pass out or something. And the, they had to be carried out. They had like severe burns. The Russian guy went into like convulsions and, uh, you know, and he eventually died. So, uh, yeah, to kind of uh, after. <laughs> so the, Russian, the, the Finnish guy got al alive. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the, after that, the uh, event was uh, completely canceled and they didn't uh, get to uh, organize it again. So uh, you, you can definitely overdo the heat. And, yeah, like if you stay in there for too long if it, or if you're trying to compete with some something or someone else. Uh, then it can definitely be uh, quite uh, damaging. And uh, yeah, if, if not, you know, skin burns, then you can definitely like pass out or something. Yeah, I mean, that's an oven, right? Like literally think of For your sure. pizza oven, right? 240 <laughs> degrees Fahrenheit. Like, yeah, I'm glad that's canceled, actually. It makes no sense. It's, <laughs> it's, it's straight up dumb. 
Like yeah, it's not a competition, right? It's a, it's clearly like a stressor. And if you're telling people, hey, like how long can we boil? That's like torture competition, right? <laughs> sure. Like I think it's pretty sensible that's not like a sanctioned event. Like I'm not I'm not telling people what's good or not good. I'm not trying to like regulate what you do on your own time, but to promote essentially torture, right? It's like yeah. how many how many nails can you like pound into your hand, right? It's for almost sure. at that level, right? It's like hey, how yeah. long can you stay in an oven for? Jeez. Yeah, I think I think that's like really in terms sad. of the- damn, that's really sad that like I'm sure these like really fit people. Um, clearly, sure. right? They could they got they killed themselves essentially. Damn. Yeah, yeah. I think like in terms of the temperatures, then you don't need to reach that high to get the optimal dose. So you probably get the optimal heat shock protein response uh, even within uh, you know 170, 180, something like that. So you don't really need to go beyond that. And you, the 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 increase above that threshold would just make you more tolerant of the heat. So let's say you just become uh, tougher against it. And uh, it doesn't, I don't think it has like additional health benefits. It just, I guess, this pure uh, resilience against the heat, which, you know, can be like a good thing to have, but it's not necessarily healthier and it's not uh, definitely uh, needed. So unless you maybe have a particular line of work that you may get exposed to that high, a high amount of heat, it doesn't have like a specifical benefit beyond the, beyond just the heat tolerance. Yeah. And I think it's also one of these like hard areas of science where it's hard to understand the dose response, right? It's like, yeah, I guess we could come up with a protocol right now, right? Just do 30 minutes at 150, 160, 170, 180, 190, 200, 210, 220, and then see which growth hormone levels, which testosterone levels, which heat shock protein levels are optimal. That would be an interesting study if there's a grad student out there that wants to like have a free research idea, thesis idea, that could be interesting to learn. But as far as I know, there's no dose response study for sauna that there are some um, for the growth hormone so uh, like the if 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 uh, if they if they do uh, 100 degrees celsius which is like 220 210 uh, like that. yeah it's yeah it's 212 that's that's, that's that's boiling yeah yeah 212 for uh, 15 minutes then that increases uh, growth hormone by fivefold if they do it uh, for like an hour then that's like uh, 16 folds increase in growth hormone so there is some studies that there but it's not um, very uh, Conclusive. Okay. And so, I'm it's, not, so it's dose response on length, not on yeah. length by. I mean, the, the the holy grail would be length of sauna by temperature of sauna, and you have like this whole table. That would be a cool right. to understand that data, right? Because <laughs> yeah, then you know it's like it. then then you would know. Hey, it's like two hours at one seventy equivalent to one hour at one ninety. That yeah. would just be interesting from a nerd out perspective to understand how everything translates. Yeah, and then you can go like maybe five minutes in 260 and yeah. get it over with or something. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Or hopefully you don't die. Yeah, one thing maybe to just help elucidate is that there's also a difference between steam rooms and dry sauna. Like for sure, like, you know, it's, there's like steam rooms where like there's actual like steam coming out and that's much harder to stay for long periods of time versus a dry sauna you know, having experience with both, right? Dry sauna, just like very dry heat. But when you're like breathing steam, like you can't stay in like hot steam because that's going to like singe your lungs. You know, you're going to be cooking your internals if you're like sitting in boiling steam, breathing in boiling steam. So definitely, I think for folks who are contemplating, thinking about different types of heat interventions, uh, understand there's difference between steam rooms versus a dry sauna and then potentially looking at infrared as like a third little lever there. Inhaling the heat uh, can also, you know, um, help to reduce uh, especially like uh, sinus infections or uh, maybe symptoms of colds because you do inhale the heat and uh, 
that can the heat can kill off some pathogens and mm. uh, also maybe create a, a more like a specific or localized heat shock protein response. So inhaling some uh, warm air at least uh, can be uh, beneficial. But yeah, it's, I agree that it's much difficult and uh, you you can't do it uh, that that much. Yeah, yeah, I think that that makes sense. I think it's just like if you're like you don't want to be like like sniffing up like boiling steam necessarily, <laughs> right? Sure. Like that's gonna hurt. Let's talk a little bit more about cold. I think I'm, I'm curious. Like obviously, I think I'm more of an explorer, explorer of heat. Uh, but Wim Hof, a lot of these like breathing practices focus on the cold. Tell me about your experience there. Have you tried to do like long durations in cold, full submersion breathing patterns, whether that's Wim Hof or otherwise? That might be a fun topic to to explore. Yeah, well, um, I do uh, take the cold as well, maybe maybe a few times a week. Uh, The most biggest uh, benefit that I see is mostly like reduced reduced inflammation and kind of shuts down like muscle soreness. So it is a great tool for recovery and not being uh, sore. Uh, So I primarily would use it on uh, like rest days uh, when I'm not uh, working out. Uh, But yeah, like the uh, the cold has been shown to also like strengthen the immune system a little bit by increasing uh, white blood cells and increasing also glutathione levels. So uh, it can be a good strategy for uh, increasing your immune 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 system strength. Uh, preventatively, so to say, because I think if you're like already sick or you have like symptoms of sickness, then uh, going into colds may actually make things worse uh, because you put uh, like additional stressor on the body. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you do it like proactively as you're already healthy, that can just increase your resilience uh, overall. But generally, yeah, it's, it's, I think uh, the cold is uh, less promising as the heat. So the heat is probably healthier and the heat has more evidence as well. And the heat has like maybe fewer side effects, but like I personally enjoy the colds as well because you know the fio- if euphoria you get from it uh, while doing it is also uh, quite uh, astonishing. So uh, yeah, the energy and increased focus and those things are also quite uh, awesome. Yeah, I've experimented with the cold showers and then hot cold plunges. Yeah, I mean you just it's like needles everywhere. It's like, you're like you just really <laughs> wake up for sure. I've had some very good friends experiment with Wim Hof breathing methods. I haven't personally done a lot of breath work myself. Is that something that you focus on or practice while you're doing the cold or is it just like cold plunge? You don't worry too much about breath work. Well, I have I have tried like the Wim Hof method a little bit, but like depends on which one uh, which which one particularly. So he has like the hyperventilation where he breathes very rapidly. That's the one that you shouldn't really do um, like right before going into the colds. Uh, at least that's what he says, because uh, it kind of ramps, you know, uh, psychs you up uh, too too much and uh, makes it more uh, like likely for that you may have like some uh, faint or something like that when you are into colds. So uh, the hyperventilation is supposed to be done uh, like in the mornings or something where you try to oxygenize your body and uh, just. Uh, practice some aspects of uh, breath control and breath holds. Uh, whereas if I'm actually in the cold, then what I think is the most important thing to do is to just uh, try to stay as calm as possible because, um, you know, most people, they're going to tense up really a lot when they're in the cold, they get the shock and they start to again, like uh, hyperventilate a little bit, uh, but that's not what you're supposed to do uh, or you shouldn't do it. You should try to uh, control your breath as much as possible because uh, if you lose control of your breath, then it's much easier for you to lose control of the stress response as well. And you go into this, uh, chronic or like you overactivate the sympathetic nervous system and uh, you kind of panic almost. Whereas if you 
stay calm, you uh, focus on your breath and uh, try to slow it down, then that's where you kind of calm down the body as well. Your body kind of goes into more parasympathetic state. And at that point, actually, like usually people go into the cold, they hyperventilate a few uh, seconds maybe, and uh, they start to calm down. And maybe after 30 seconds or so, they're like almost completely quiet, quiet and calm, and they're just sitting there and they're <laughs> focusing on the breath, and they're like really uh, still. And it's a quite phenomenal response that you over overcame this initial reaction. And uh, once you do that, then it actually becomes very enjoyable, and the people just uh, stay silent. Yeah, that's actually pretty interesting. And I remember just as a kid growing up in Los Angeles and having a lot of swimming pools around, and sometimes like you're a kid, like your parents don't want you to drown. It's like, yeah. And I remember just thinking like, if you freak out and you get in the water, you like muscle cramp and then you can actually <laughs> like drown, right? So I think right. it is actually something that I hear a lot from folks who spend a lot of time in the water. You gotta just stay calm in the water, right? Like you're yeah. not fighting your way out of the ocean. You're not going to fight your way through this like mass of gallons of water, but if you're exactly. calm, you're loose, you like accept and like move with the water. You can actually preserve your oxygen, preserve your cognition and actually make it alive, which is good to, good to have. I guess it's like, if we ever find ourselves just dunked into like a Titanic situation where you just get thrown into the frigid ocean, stay calm is, is, <laughs> is the, is the takeaway. Cool. Anything else? So we talked about vitamin D, sunlight. We were talking about heat and cold, sauna, cold plunges. What else in terms of kind of lifestyle, uh, interventional things that could be takeaways for folks to explore? Yeah. Uh, well, in terms of like the uh, uh, you know stress and uh, stress adaptation, then I think it's also very important to have like psychological resilience. So that kind of just refers to... Uh, emotionally and mentally not being uh, overtaken by stress and uh, like stressful events. So, um, you know, what I find the most valuable thing for that is to kind of realize that, you know, these stressful things, uh, uncontrollable things, uh, chaos, uh, pandemics, war, whatever it may be, they're kind of um, almost guaranteed to happen eventually. Like it's not a matter of if, it's more like a matter of when. And uh, once we kind of realize that, we can also make peace with that uh, to a certain extent that we... Uh, don't have to freak out uh, about those things because we can't control them. Like we can't control the weather and we can't control outside events. We can only control our own response and our own thoughts and actions. So um, just the focusing on that can uh, kind of, you, we can find more peace um, in that. And, and therefore we can also, if we focus only on the things that we can control, such as our thoughts and actions, then we can also uh, control our response to the stress when it does arrive. So instead of panicking, instead of uh, freaking out, we almost, you know, automatically, okay, this is what it is. Uh, I'm not going to try to control the things that I can't control. I'm going to focus on the things that I can control. And uh, not only are you more prepared for that, but you will also maintain like a more rational uh, way of behaving when uh, the uh, actual event uh, happens. Yeah, interesting. This is something I've actually put a lot of thought into recently as well. So I'm curious, where did kind of this mindset philosophy come from? Like I've yeah. personally landed towards this mind of thinking. And I think a lot of it's been inspired both from Western philosophy, Stoicism, right? Marcus Aurelius, reading his journal, his writing about surviving the barbarian hordes as he's like at the tail end of the peak of the Roman Empire. And I also see a lot of the similar philosophical thinking from Zen Buddhism, right? Just having some detachment and being centered and kind of going with the flow. So I think tying both of these traditions, Western Stoicism, Eastern Zen Buddhism, 
And I think especially now with a lot of things out of our control with pandemic and political and social unrest and all of that stuff, um, this is something that I personally think about a lot. So one, I just want to establish that. But two, it's like, I feel like sometimes it feels maybe callous. It feels like maybe we like don't are uncaring of like the the pain of our fellow humans and that we're like, hey, you got to relax. Right. Right. And I don't know if that's because we're overly sensitive and we're performing for political correctness that we need to like say these nice words about like something we didn't cause, something we di- weren't a part of, something we cannot control. But like we need to say some lip service to like, oh, we 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 feel sorrow or we, we need to have prayers and all that stuff, which is not to say we shouldn't have prayers. It's just like to me, it's like is being stoic, is being Zen, is being detached, overly callous. How are you reconciling that? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, well, um, first of all, like, yeah, maybe like the stoicism um, has this connotation of being like very cold and very emotionless, but I think that's not necessarily the case, or it doesn't have to be uh, that. So you can definitely like be compassionate about your uh, fellow human beings and uh, close ones. Uh, and you don't necessarily have to like lose your stoic uh, grip on things uh, by that. So you can still be rational and you can still be uh, logical. You can still try to do the best you can uh, or you, you can still try to focus on the things that you can control. So it doesn't uh, have to neglect uh, the aspect of stoicism. So, And it doesn't also make you that that you kind of uh, give up or you stop fighting like actually the you know one of the most stoic things would be to fight uh, against whatever you know these uh, external forces whatever it may be uh, even though you it may be futile or something something like that uh, just because you know it's the like the right thing to do like yep. in stoicism the highest value is a uh, virtue which is you know virtue and you you could you know call it some doing the right thing uh, or being in having integrity and uh, acting in a right way in a good way that's that can be like, yeah, going into some sort of, you know, like stoic being, you know, growing children is a, one of the most stoic things to do. Like as a, as a parent, you have to sacrifice your health and your time and your resources and all those things in order to uh, do the right thing, which is to be a parent and uh, make sure that you, you know, grow up your child in a, the best way you can. And likewise, uh, like Marcus Aurelius, uh, he was also stoic in a way that he put himself into this uh, situation where he was, yeah, like surrounded by barbarians. Like during his time, he was actually going, his, Rome was also going through like the pandemic of its own that killed almost like one third of the population. And, you know, during the time he was, you know, experiencing a lot of, uh, you know, suffering and uh, chaos and those things, man, but he still kind of tried to maintain this um, virtuous character that he always wanted to do the right thing and, uh be uh, you know compassionate towards other people around him, but at the same time also be very kind of rational about it and never let his like anger and emotions uh, take control of his um, actions. I think yeah, I think well stated there, and I think part of the reason why I like to read history and really just like learn the lessons from the past is that imagine if a third of <laughs> our friends died through a pandemic, right? Which is basically what you're describing happened in Rome during Marcus Aurelius's hour, plus having foreign invaders around surrounding you and your your legions are falling. What kind yeah. of stress, what kind of yeah. like anxiety must that human be carrying on his shoulder? And then, yeah. I, then I think about my very, very like soft problems and I'm like, Hey, this is not that bad. Mm-hmm. And I, I, so I think again, I like, I, so I don't want to be callous to like our current suffering. Right. Because I think 
for someone who's lost a loved one or is struggling through a challenging economy, that level of pain is like max pain to them, right? Mm, Because they don't know, like, I don't know what it's like to be a Roman emperor. Like, neither do you, neither does, you know, our, our, our hypothetical third person that is struggling right now. Like, they're hitting their max pain, which is the same subjective feeling as Marcus Aurelius losing a third of his civilization, his population, and being invaded. So that's like an interesting, I think, thought point to uh, to just like meditate on. Yeah, like the suffering is always uh, subjective. So we're, like if we were to be put into the shoes of someone else, uh, then yeah, we would experience also that max pain and uh, max suffering. But, you know, we, we and we shouldn't be this, uh, discard uh, that. But, but like once again, we're like we ha- then have to realize again, like this very subjective to us. And the, there have been like... Uh, many people in the past who have experienced uh, multifold, much higher amounts of suffering as well. If you were to try to, you know, objectively try to uh, quantify it in some ways, uh, which isn't like a good idea. But again, this kind of has to, we have to kind of realize again, like, yeah, that uh, these things happen and they're kind of inevitable and um, we shouldn't uh, put, let's say, we shouldn't uh, try to think of them as something that uh, are avoidable uh, to a certain extent. And like one Buddhist quote, uh, I think that can be also helpful for that is like that pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. So we, we, will, we will always experience the pain. We will always experience like the heat shock or the exercise or the uh, yeah, like physical trauma, uh, something hitting us or something we get hit by a bus. Uh, the pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. So we, we aren't... We, we will always choose the suffering based upon our like, subjective perspective of it, so to say, so that we kind of rationalize it in our head to, to kind of uh, categorize it as suffering. Whereas if we were to categorize it or view it from a different perspective, then it might not be uh, as, you know, suffering for us. So, uh, you know, of course, losing loved ones, it is suffering and um, it is uh, hard. But But again, like you can use that same mindset for like some easier, you know, situations uh, like, yeah, missing the bus or being injured in some way. Yeah. And I think just like this, this notion of subjective max suffering, I think part of it also allows, I I, I become more empathetic with that realization because maybe for that person who's a snowflake and like, hasn't had real suffering in their life, maybe they literally are like having their world melted because they haven't had any hard actual suffering and challenges and something little ha- like really ruined their day. Like there's some empathy there for in their very subjective frame. That's like the worst things ever happened that they missed with sure. us. Yeah. And then yeah, like, so I think it's like that balance, right? It's like that. I have that empathy of understanding in their mindset. It's like, wow, they had the worst thing in their life because like their makeup was ruined or, you know, someone like scowled at them on the, on the bus. Yeah. But then I think the, the deeper realization is that, you know, have some empathy to our fellow person. But I think when I'm looking at like the beauty and privilege of my life compared to, you know, previous generations who actually had to go through famine, war, people trying to murder you, people trying to kill you. It's like, dude, my life is freak. I have no freaking problems. Right. It's just like, I, I, and I think that's been really empowering for me to just like approach the world with gratitude right? Like yeah. no one's trying to kill me. Like no one's trying to <laughs> like stab me outside, you know, crossing <laughs> fingers. And I think yeah. it's like, man, I think probably for a lot of human history, a lot of people actually had to be worried about getting killed by like a for tiger sure. or like another, yeah. another fellow human. 
And it's like, man, in that super macro lens, we're pretty damn lucky. So I think it's like, yeah. how do you hold all of these like realizations and, and, and how do you be, become productive in like that Zen or stoic mindset? Yeah, it, yeah absolutely. And uh, I think the way you kind of bridge this gap is to uh, when, when the person is like uh, actually in the particular moment experiencing the suffering or, you know, they're in this uh, event, something bad happened to them, then in that situation, you should uh, be empathetic and you should, you know, be compassionate and you should, you know, consolidate or help them at that moment in time because, uh then they're they're very uh, irresponsible or they're, they're not responsive to like your uh, rational thinking <laughs> they're not going to want to hear it uh, they don't care about all these things that the in the past humans were suffering much more than you did because again like they're in this max pain state and they don't want to hear anything ab about it and that's why you have to be very passionate and compassionate in that moment but afterwards uh, once the event has passed then the goal should be to try to shift their mindset a little bit. Again, teach them, teach them these principles that we talked about that you can't control many things. And uh, again, like you, you are actually very fortunate, and all of us are very fortunate. And you shouldn't think, take things for granted. And you should kind of, kind of try to get them out of this snowflake state. Uh, but if they are already a snowflake and they are experiencing this trauma and stress, then in that state you should also be somewhat of a snowflake, or at least uh, try to uh, mimic their physiology in some way uh, in order to uh, allow them to uh, get out of it uh, in intact. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I was born like with this realization, right? Like I was, I would definitely was a snowflake at different yeah. periods of my life. <laughs> And sure. I don't think, and I don't think we, you or I to, are even claiming we're like super Jedi masters or anything, but it, like maybe just humanize it for people. Were there some moments that like allowed you to, or, or put you down the path of reading Marcus Aurelius, being self-reflective? Were there points of, maybe to give you a sense of where I think I came from was that like what there were definitely low points in business or a career or personal life where I felt like the world was ending. And then mm -hmm. I think those, those depths of pain, of fear, of sense of failure were like that foil. And it caused me to like, just really self-reflect and understand my psychology better and better and better. I think as I saw the depths of what it's like to feel like crap, I could then have like the full understanding of what it's like to feel grateful and feel mm. a place from fortunate and, and, and gratitude. And I feel like I've seen this when I talk to people that have sensed or experienced like real loss. Like I talked to a lot of uh, military veterans who've lost their brothers in battle. And I think some people like don't react to that well, have PTSD and like have like just actual mental issues. But I feel like some folks who really internalize that in terms of in, in growing from the experience where it's like life is so precious that like I get to live now. Like my my brother died, you know, protecting alongside me. And now like I have a chance to live this short life. I feel like those people were like really, like really enjoy the beauty of life. So I think yeah. to me, there's probably like that that foil that one must see pain. One must see like the depth of like how low our emotions go can go to really get a full understanding of the spectrum. And I think too many of us today in this modern, very soft, cushy modernity are always in just like euphoria and like no one liked your social media posts enough. So then you're like right. really depressed. And that's like the range of your emotion. I'm For curious sure. to not you know, pass the mic back to you in terms of what your thoughts are. Do you have personal like, like 
down points? Was that a trigger for you? What was your personal journey on the mindset side? I've always been like very self-reflective and deep into self-inquiry, but uh, maybe like I realized like these... um, the stoic um, viewpoint of the world that you can't control many things and uh, you should only focus on your own actions and thoughts is uh, when I was in the military. So there, like, you know, you are, you know, training a lot, you're in the cold, in the snow, in the rain all the time. And at that time, also like in your deep thoughts uh, most of the time. So you're, I was thinking, yeah, like, you know, we are very fortunate of uh, just having a roof over our head. Because uh, yeah, like it can be taken away at a moment's notice, and uh, no one cares. Like the the nature, our nature, and the universe don't care about uh, these uh, human rights or uh, hu- the comforts of societies. Those <laughs> yeah. actually, they're like man-made uh, things, actually. So uh, in the real world, like those things actually don't exist. Uh, so uh, you know that's why I've uh, yeah like been if, if you you could call it like a small shock because I, I went to the military also right after high school like I was eighteen and uh, you know as a young man it can have like a pretty uh, profound impact uh, but after the military uh, I was also just a lot into I was like very motivated after the military to take like personal development very seriously like I read all the books I did a lot of you know. Uh, uh, like I worked on myself a lot and uh, yeah, just uh, that that was when I stumbled upon many of the philosophers and uh, just general this mindset that, you know, you can like the same situation can happen to uh, different people and they, they can respond completely differently. And the trajectory of their life is also going to be completely different. Like you can take even like twins and they may respond through these events uh, in a different way. Like some, uh, someone may become like a drug addict or someone else will become like a successful businessman or something else. But what, what determines only like their own uh, response to the uh, situation and the event that is going to determine the trajectory. So yeah, I think that, that's one of the biggest, you know, or the most important things of trying to control your response to those events and uh, making sure that, uh, yeah, you try to do the best uh, decision uh, as, as well as you can based upon like the, the knowledge and the resources you have uh, in that moment. Yeah, I think one, two things I want to reflect on, which is one, I think the challenge of enlisting into the military as an 18 year old kid is, I think within just human ancestral culture, there's always these rites of passage for young men, young women across a lot of cultures. And I think for better or for worse, we do not have that anymore. Like, is that college? But college is like a four years of partying for most kids, in, especially in America, where it's like, very expensive. They take student debt and like, they're not seriously studying, right? Just look at what college kids are doing actually, right? Sure. There's some Mm -hmm. kids are serious about academics and, you know, doing, but you know, is that really valuable for 50% of college students where they're just there to booze and party and meet boys and girls? It's fine for a vacation, right? But is that really a rite of passage, a challenge? And I think there's something missing about our culture, our society where it's too soft. There's no rite of passage where people see that struggle. And then two, reflecting on like being in the wilderness. And I've had some very, very lightweight experience there just pushing myself and and spending time with like-minded folks in terms of personal resiliency, personal survival. And I think what you said in terms of like human rights are like not real, like that might not be PC, right? But it's not actually real in the sense that like, there's no laws of physics that says like, hey, like humans are, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. Like you have the right yeah. to healthcare. I don't know. There's no like law of physics that like rights, you have the right to healthcare. Yeah. And I think just spending a lot of time in nature and, you know, if went on a 
super beautiful safari in South Africa and seeing like the wildebeest migration. Nature is frick. Like, I think there's like a really cool Instagram and Twitter handle. <laughs> nature is metal. I don't know if you've seen yeah. that, but it's just yeah. like, you just see like animals, like in nature, like being friggin' metal, meaning like you see like antelopes with like legs torn off and gorillas, like eating baby, you know, antelopes and you see the rawness of nature. Like nature yeah. is not very pretty. Civilization has tried to like mollify and edge the corners of like how brutal reality is. And I think when you're camping outside in the cold and you have like a little space blanket and you're just like freezing your butt off, dude, there's like no, like nature is not offering you like free food, water and fire and shelter. Like you're out there. There's, there's like no, laws of humanity it's just the laws of physics and like they don't care yeah exactly and uh you know what what, what one thing that is unfortunate about our modern society is that we don't have again like some necessity to like take responsibility for our actions and also like you know you know be more independent we don't have like necessity because yeah we expect everything to be handed to us and uh you know that can be that can be okay if we were to live in this utopian society, but we don't. So, like, uh, yeah, like the uh, we we we're like one solar flare away from um, some complete collapse of society, or to a certain extent at least uh, for a while. And uh, yeah, like we, unexpected things can happen, and uh, we just yeah, uh, and we kind of like take our and we kind of saw that with the early phases of the pandemic, where people in America were just stocking up on toilet paper, right? <laughs> sure. But like, I do want to say that that does not mean that we're like cold that we don't have yeah, compassion sure. i think it's i i think my point at least and it sounds like we're, in, we're we're on the same page here is that like just understanding that society is so brittle that we're not that far away from just like going back to nature and therefore like a, and like having some real appreciation with experiencing that the, the, the coldness of, of 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 nature the coldness of physics makes me appreciate civilization culture compassion community yeah. having a yeah. tribe like working you know having good conversation it makes me actually appreciate that so much more and why society rule of law is so important and again yeah. i think it's because people don't know how bad it actually could be they're like ah oh, like they take it for granted and then and then i think people just like want to like tear things down over like a snowflake issue so yeah. Yeah, like I, yeah, like yeah. after after being like in the military and in the wilderness and so on, I do be I am more appreciative of you know the thing that we have built is quite you know marvelous you know democratic society and uh, free, human freedoms and human rights they're amazing things and I don't I that's why I'll I'll like uh, fight more for for those things in order to not lose them and uh, again like va value them and uh, not again like not let uh, these uh, things uh, be taken for granted and like and after a while like once you do like uh, try to let's say impose more uh, responsibility on yourself and try to take care of yourself more independently then you actually start to enjoy life more as well because uh, you have like more confidence and you uh, again like you have a more like a sense of agency in the world that you can control things at least uh, a little bit more <laughs> compared to something that if you were to be completely dependent of uh, someone helping you or some other's um, external world supporting you like you you're kind of uh, you're uh, outsourcing your agency if that makes sense uh, whereas yep. if you were to be more independent then uh, you 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 will at least be assured that you are doing the best uh, at uh, doing the things that you can control which is your yourself essentially yep. and i think the added 
social benefit from that is that the more valuable and independent you are and the more you can contribute, the better you can actually help the overall community and society, yeah. right? Because if you can't help yourself, how can you actually help your community? So yeah. I think that's where, you know, a lot of where I think about is like, how do you optimize yourself? And then from there, how do you optimize the group around you, your team, your community and overall civilization? I think those are just like very related problems. You can improve yourself. Yeah. You can actually have a shot at improving your community, your, your, your neighborhood around you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like if you want to change the world, then uh, start with yourself. <laughs> like yep. the many, many quotes I uh, have said. I mean, I don't think there's a much better place to wrap up. I mean, it's been a fun conversation going from uh, health, <laughs> vitamin D to, uh, it's fun to just chat philosophy and mindset and resilience. I think now more than ever, we need more people to be mentally resilient and confident and productive as possible and let's not devolve into panic and fear and 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 the negativity of all of that so we'll leave it Absolutely. at that so as, as we wrap up here where do people follow along what projects are you looking forward to what are the shout outs yeah well um, my website is uh, seamland.com and i'm also seamland on all the uh, social media platforms currently like i have released like the stronger by stress book which talks about these same topics uh hormesis and stress uh, resilience uh, but i'm also like working on a like a documentary type of movie about the same topic uh, stronger by stress uh, which will maybe like next year come out somewhere uh, but yeah we'll see Cool. Yeah. When that comes out, we'll have you back on to talk about it. So Sim, again, always a pleasure to chat. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.